One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. We had some patrons this week. Thank you guys very much for donating to our show. There you will get bonus content. This week we had Donna, Sarah, Wendy, Rhiannon. Kira, Michelle, Bill, Adrian, Kyle, Polly, and Matt. Thanks, guys. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. This week, I had kind of in my mind that I was going to do a classic murder that would be a sort of movie versus reality, like a classic murder that inspired a movie or maybe multiple movies. And I had one in mind that I'm not going to tell you because I ended up not doing that one and I will save it for a later date. And the reason that I switched, I changed my mind last minute was because I saw that August 1st was the anniversary of a very famous mass murder. Uh, And obviously August 1st is coming up this week, Wednesday, I think. And that is uh, the 52nd anniversary of the University of Texas tower shooting committed by Charles Whitman, which killed 16 people, including one unborn child, and injured 31 others. Whitman was killed in the incident also, as well as another victim who actually survived the initial incident but died in 2001, and his death was actually ruled a homicide because the injury that he died of was stemmed from the incident almost, you know, 50 some or 40 something years earlier, which I thought was like crazy. Wow. <laughs> but they're still like keeping track of that kind of thing. Like, yeah. This incident was obviously one of the first huge mass murders. I mean, it took place in uh, 1966. So obviously, it's not the world that we live in right now. And it was the inspiration for numerous movies, TV, and a bunch of songs as well. It's still one of the actually actually one of the deadliest mass shootings, despite what has happened in recent years. It wow. has been knocked down to I think number seven or eight, and it was the highest um, kill, highest amount of people killed at a school until Virginia Tech happened. So it kind of maintained that that's distinction. Distinction. So let us get into the real story of what happened, and I'm going to hit on some of the movies, primarily. Uh, a movie called Targets, which was Peter Bogdanovich's first movie and starred Boris Karloff. And I watched that last night. So that's why you were looking at <laughs> pictures of sexy Boris, sexy Boris Karloff. Karloff. And there's something kind of hot to me about Boris Karloff. He's kind of like Frankenstein. <laughs> You're really selling it, guys. It's like the eyes of Frankenstein, but not as big of a forehead and not greenish or whatever he was. Uh, check him out. Lay off, ladies. <laughs> That corpse is mine. (laughs) Uh, This was actually his last movie, too, by the way, Targets. Charles Whitman was born on June 24th in 1941. He was uh, born in Florida. Hey. Shout (laughs) Shout out out to to all my Florida peeps. He was the eldest of three sons, and he was born to a woman named Margaret and a man named Charles Whitman. His father had kind of a rough life. He was raised in an orphanage and he was sort of like a man who prided himself on being a self-made man. He was a strict disciplinarian. um, And there was a lot of domestic violence in the marriage between Charles's parents when he was growing up. I'll get to it in a bit in a note that he left behind, but he basically said that he would see his mom physically abused at least once a month. 
So as I said before, he was like an authoritarian, like a strict daddy type thing. And he demanded near perfection from all of his sons. Uh, and he was known to emotionally and physically abuse not just his wife, but his children as well. Whitman was kind of described as a polite child, like very calm. He was extremely intelligent and tested um, at the age of six to have uh, an IQ of 139, which is really high. Yeah. He, you know, achieved great like academic scores throughout his um, school years, his early school years. And he just, I mean, he had that disciplinarian dad. So I think he just got in line yeah. from an early age. He was also raised Roman Catholic. His mom was like a devout Roman Catholic. So he had the religious aspect to his life as well. He was an altar boy with his um, brothers. And he also had an early love of guns because his dad was an avid gun collector. Yeah. Whitman Sr. um, taught all of his sons to shoot, clean, and maintain weapons. He took them on hunting trips. And Charles became quite an accomplished marksman from an early age. His dad once said of him that this is a quote, Charlie could plug the eye out of a squirrel by the time he was 16. I'm assuming plugging an eye is shooting it. I don't know gun talk, but I'm guessing that's the brag, right? No offense, but I would never date a guy who that was their skill. Like that was their greatest skill. Like you're really good at shooting. Yeah. You're really good at shooting There's only one thing I want them to be good at shooting. (laughs) Damn straight. The hell? Yeah. That's not going to be impressive. Like, I'm not swiping right on that. No. <laughs> Whatever you, I don't know how to do shoot tender. It, shoot something else into my eye <laughs> and then we'll talk. So Whitman was also a boy scout and an Eagle scout. And he was quite successful in that kind of stuff as well. Uh, he was a, a accomplished pianist and uh, around the age of 12, he became a newspaper route boy or a news. What is it? Paper boy. Yeah. Uh, and he was successful in his paper route as well. In fact, when he entered high school in 1955, he was so successful with his paper route and had saved enough money that he bought himself a Harley-Davidson motorcycle, and he was quite popular uh, after that point. <laughs> like a popular student. Obviously, if you're riding a Harley to school every day, that's totally. got to be pretty hot in the 50s, right? Bad boy. After he graduated from high school, he enlisted in the Marines about a month afterwards. He basically did it to get away from his fucking dad. And he didn't even tell his dad that he enlisted. The sort of inciting incident for him enlisting in the military was that a month before he joined, his father had beaten him and thrown him into the family swimming bo- swimming pool because he had come home drunk after like a graduation party. He got out of the house basically by joining the military, which I would guess is probably a common thing back then. By the time he traveled to Paris Island, which was where like boot camp was or whatever, his dad found out that he had enlisted. And this is like how controlling the dad is. He actually called the federal government to get the enlistment canceled. I'm sorry. Jesus. <laughs> I like the idea that you think that you can do that. Like, uh, yeah. Was he successful? No, he okay. was not successful. <laughs> so there's like, I guess in the military, there's like different like service periods. Um, I think he had enlisted for five years, but for his first 18 month service, he, um, was earned a sharpshooter's badge. He started, that's where he really started becoming a marksman, like a real, not just like shooting a squirrel in the aisle. I, uh, I, sorry, 
but like military grade level right. sharpshooter. He received 215 of 200 possible points on his test for marksmanship, which was a really good <laughs> score. If you don't know, I didn't know. I don't know. Why would I know? I mean, a hundred seems pretty good to me. <laughs> and that's basically what that is, is you're shooting rapidly over long distances as well as at moving targets. So that's sort of what that test entails, which obviously is sort of foreshadowing a skill that he will use later yeah. for uh, devastating reasons. After he completed this program in the military, he applied for a scholarship program that was offered by the Marines, and he was going to use that to attend college and become a commissioned officer. So I guess Marines have something like, while you're in service, you can attend college to become a, a higher level officer. He earned high scores on the examination he had to take to get that, and then they approved his enrollment at preparatory school in Maryland, where he completed courses in mathematics and physics, and then was approved to transfer to the University of Texas at Austin to study mechanical engineering. So on September 15, 1961, he entered that program at the University of Texas in Austin, and he was not the great student that he had once been in elementary school and high school. He was a really poor student. He spent a lot of time focusing on his hobbies, which included karate, scuba diving, hunting, and gambling, <laughs> which becomes a problem for him. He did get in trouble. This like first brush with the law happened in uh, while he was attending the university. Him and two of his friends were caught poaching a deer. A passerby actually saw them, reported the license plate, and they were kind of caught butchering a deer in the shower at Whit Whitman's dormitory after they saw him taking it out of the car. So they basically took a dead deer into the dorm and started butchering it in the communal showers. Absolutely not interested <laughs> in eating shower venison. Uh, he was fined for that offense. Um, the other sort of disturbing thing, and I know this is not as bad as being a mass murderer, he had a reputation as a practical joker, which to me is also like kind of a red flag. <sighs> I don't fucking like practical jokers. I don't either. It's like you're just being annoying. It's not It actually funny. makes me hate George Clooney because I'm like, honestly, you're in your 50s. <laughs> Why are you still doing practical jokes? Like, I'm not amused by those stories, People Magazine. I, I'm like, not either. I'm just not amused. Well, also, George Clooney is like the kind of guy who thinks he's really funny, and he's like, oh, I'm funny. I'm a funny right. guy. Right. I mean, some other weird things happened while he was in this school during this period. Um, he, he was sort of known for having a morbid sense of humor and saying things that were sort of chilling. Now, I don't know if people found these chilling at the time, time he said them or after the fact they became more chilling. On one occasion, a friend reported that they were in the bookstore in the main building of the University of Texas, and Whitman remarked, a person could stand off an army from atop the tower before they got him. So, I mean, the tower was where he ended up doing his, yeah. his killing spree. In February of 1962, when he was 20 years old, Charles met a woman named Kathleen Les Leisner, and she was an education major two years younger than him. That was his first serious girlfriend. They went out for five months, and then they got engaged uh, on July 19th. They were married just a month later, August in August, in a Catholic ceremony. Um, the couple actually got married on the 22nd wedding anniversary of Whitman's parents, because why not <laughs> commemorate that amazing relationship with, <laughs> like, what? Whitman's family actually came to the ceremony, and everyone sort of thought that he was a great 
guy. Like she landed a great guy. He was handsome. He has like a very classic, I'm going to say it's fifties look, even though this is the sixties, like the crew cut blonde. Like if you see a picture of him, it is just this classic look of a guy from that period that you would like a very military kind of look too. And obviously he's a really smart guy. And he had a lot of ambition. So it was like a, a catch for her. Everyone was right. happy with this marriage. Whitman's grades started to improve too after he got married. But the Marines still considered them insufficient for the continuation of his scholarship. So he basically lost his scholarship due to his poor performance. And he had to go back to active duty in February of 1963. And he went to North Carolina for the remainder of his five-year enlistment. He was not happy about losing that scholarship. He resented the military and that's where he started started, started going off um, on the military and his unfair treatment. While he was in this, back in North Carolina, he actually was hospitalized for four days and this sort of like an interesting fact to me. He single-handedly freed another Marine who was stuck under a Jeep that had rolled over an embankment and like lifted <laughs> the Jeep up to save this Marine who was trapped underneath. Is that a real story? I'm assuming. I mean, I didn't like spend hours fact checking. <laughs> Lifted it by himself? I mean, I've heard that with like moms with their kids well, yeah, and but stuff. he's not a mom. <laughs> I believe it when it's like a mom saving but her kid. I, yeah, I have no idea. So he, like I mentioned before, he loved to gamble and that became a problem because he kind of continued his gambling while he was still a Marine. And in November of 1963, he was court-martialed for gambling uh, and for having a personal firearm on base and for threatening another Marine over a $30 loan for which he had demanded $15 in interest. I'm sorry. Just love this idea. big interest. Yeah. He was sentenced to 30 days of confinement and 90 days of hard labor and was demoted from Lance Corporal to private. It was while he was awaiting his court-martial in 1963 that he began keeping his diary. And there's lots of pictures on the internet, so maybe we can post some for you. On the cover, it says, Daily Record of C.J. Whitman. In it, he wrote about his daily life, just things that were happening in the Marine. He wrote about his wife and other family members. Uh, He wrote about his contempt for the Marines and the court-martial he was going through. And then he also started writing about his father and just feeling like he needed to free himself from the control of his father, who I think was still giving them financial support, him and his wife, at this period. Uh, In December of 1964, he was honorably discharged from the Marines, and he returned to the University of Texas and re-enrolled in the architectural engineering program. Uh, He started working as a bill collector to support him and his wife. And then he later worked as a bank teller. He, um, his wife at the time started working as a biology teacher at a local, uh, high school. Friends at that time, like after the fact said that Whitman had told them that he had struck his wife on two occasions during this uh, period. They say that he despised himself for it. Like he had a lot of guilt because it was like, I'm doing what my dad did to my mom. And it was something that he didn't like. So he just was mortally afraid of being like his father. In his journal that he was keeping, he talks a lot about the regret for his actions and he and, and it resolved to be a good husband and not the abusive asshole that his father was. In May of 1966, his mom announced that she was finally divorcing her husband due to his continued phys- physical abuse and she actually drove, Charles drove to Florida to help his mom move to Austin so he could 
be near her. Yeah. Uh, they were so scared of the father that they actually had a police officer escort them to the house so she could pack up her belongings and he could help her get them and then move back to Texas. So once they were back in Texas, his mom got a job at a cafeteria, moved into her own apartment and just started setting up her life there. And they were close, uh, obviously. Whitman's father didn't want to let her go. He spent more than $1,000, which back in those days was about $8,000 on long distance phone calls, begging his wife to get back together with him and also calling Charles asking her him to convince the mom to come back I know it's like block it's like (laughs) god I missed the day like imagine not being able to block people or like right this was a very stressful time for Charles and he began abusing amphetamines and started experiencing severe headaches which he describes in his journal as tremendous most people who analyze his journal describe him as being very self-aware. Like he really was looking at his mental health and what was happening with him at this period. He was trying to understand these thoughts that he was having and the actions that were taking over his interior. Like his interior life was a constant state of having these thoughts that he didn't like he, that he was having, like impulse control and I and and thoughts of violent activities or committing violence were sort of you know, just taking over his interior life. Well, amphetamines obviously are going to exacerbate that too. Oh, right. Because they get get you kind of speeded up and paranoid maybe a little bit. Yeah. They make you Mm -hmm. incredibly paranoid. These things concerned him enough that he actually did start seeing uh, a psychiatrist. He sought help from at least five psychiatrists. The last one prescribed him Valium and recommended him to see a campus psychiatrist. Uh, he did see this man. It was a staff psychiatrist named Dr. Maurice Heatley, and he was at the Campus Health Center on University of Texas at Austin. He saw Charles on March 29, 1966, which was about five months before the shooting. Or in that session, Charles explained his frustration with his parents' separation and his increasing strains at work and school. He also uh, made a remark during the session about feeling the urge to start shooting people with a deer rifle from the university tower. Heatley noted that Whitman was oozing with hostility during this session. Um, another person met with him two months prior to the shooting and said that Whitman had confided that he had lost his faith and no longer considered him a practice, practicing Catholic. In like early summer, he was prescribed uh, dexedrine. The psychiatrist, Dr. Healy, is mentioned in Whitman's suicide note, which I'm going to get more to in a bit. I mean, that's like, he says in it, uh, I talked with a doctor once for about two hours and tried to convey to him my fears that I felt come overwhelming violent impulses. After one visit, I never saw the doctor again, and since then have been fighting my mental turmoil alone and seemingly to no avail. Heatley's notes on the visit said this, This massive, muscular youth seemed to be oozing with hostility, that something seemed to be happening to him, and he didn't seem to be himself. He readily admits having overwhelming periods of hostility with a very minimum of provocation. Repeated inquiries attempting to analyze his exact experiences were not too successful, with the exception of his vivid reference to thinking about going up on the tower with a deer rifle and start shooting people. I mean, this is like an insane thing it just shows how long, how far we've come maybe with dealings with incidents like this. Like, I can't imagine if you said this in a, in a therapy session now right. that it wouldn't be reported. Oh my God. Do you know I, what I mean? Like this well, wasn't even like, it's such a specific thing to say. Right. Or maybe at the time though, it was just like something no one would even think that someone would possibly do. 
It's like he literally said what he was going to do in a therapy session. Right. It's not, it's not just like he said to his therapist. Sometimes I think about just shooting people. It's like he said to his therapist a very specific plan that he had. Yeah. The day before the shootings, Whitman brought, bought a pair of binoculars and a knife from a hardware store, some spam from a 7-Eleven convenience store. And he picked up his wife from her summer job as a telephone operator before they met their, met his mother for lunch and then later that afternoon, around 4 p.m., the couple visited their close friends, and they left their close friend's apartment at 5.50 so Kathy could get to her uh, shift, which was 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. at night. At 6.45, Whitman began typing his suicide note, a portion of which uh, I'm going to read to you. Uh, I do not un- quite understand what it is that compels me to type this letter. Perhaps it is to leave some vague reason for the actions I have recently performed. I do not really understand myself these days. I am supposed to be an average, reasonable, and intelligent young man. However, lately, I cannot recall when it started, I have been a victim of many unusual and irrational thoughts. These thoughts constantly recur, and it requires a tremendous mental effort to concentrate on useful and progressive tasks. He goes on into the note to request an autopsy be performed on his remains after he is dead to determine if there has been a discernible biological contributory cause for his actions and for his increasingly intense headaches. He also writes that he decided to kill both his mother and wife, expressing uncertainty about his reasons, but basically saying he couldn't imagine leaving them in this world to go on alone. He also goes on to say that his mom had never really enjoyed life that she, the life that she was entitled to. And he, it's basically like, I don't want to leave them in this world without me. So I'm going to kill them. Well, maybe she didn't enjoy life because she was <laughs> living with her. I know she's like there in her apartment. She had a cafeteria job. I mean, come yeah. on. He also wanted to like save them from the embarrassment of his actions. Uh, in the suicide note, he does not mention the attack on the university. He could save them from the embarrassment of his actions by not doing his actions. Look, there's a lot. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just, There's a lot of second guessing we could do with this. Look, note. I'm not always rational, but I'm very rational yeah. about this, I feel like. <laughs> so after midnight on August 1st, Whitman drove to his mother's apartment where he murdered her, basically, as she lied in bed under her sheets. It's sort of up in the air exactly what he did, but they basically believe he, they ren- he rendered her unconscious somehow before stabbing her in the heart. Oh, he stabbed her. Mm-hmm. He didn't shoot her. No. He left a handwritten note beside her body, which read, To whom it may concern, I have just taken my mother's life. I am very upset over having done it. However, I feel that if there is a heaven, she is definitely there now. I am truly sorry. Let there be no doubt in your mind that I love this woman with all of my heart. Whitman then returned to his own home, where he killed his wife by stabbing her three times in the heart as she slept. He covered her body with sheets, and then he went back to the typewritten note he had begun the previous evening, the uh, suicide note, and for some reason, he continues it in ballpoint pen. I actually have a copy of the note that I was looking at, and you can barely read the handwritten part. Yeah. Um, Like it's chicken scratch? It's just like very unreadable. And I thought maybe it was like a bad copy. And then I looked for other people who maybe had transcribed it. And it's like the typewritten part. And then they're like, unlegible. <laughs> like the, right. So I was like, I mean, I guess maybe it's just whatever. He, in a ballpoint pen, he wrote, there's some words that they have. Friends interrupted, 8166, 3 a.m., both dead. Whitman continued in pen. Wait, this is his suicide note? Yeah, this is like the handwritten part. So it's like a little sketch. 
I imagine it appears that I brutally killed both of my loved ones. I was only trying to do a quick, thorough job. If my life insurance policy is valid, please pay off my debts. Donate the rest anonymously to a mental health foundation. Maybe research can prevent further tragedies of this type. Give our dog to my in-laws. Tell them Kathy loved Shochi very much. I guess that's the dog's name. If you can't find in yourselves to grant my last wish, cremate me after the autopsy. So he also left instructions in the house requesting two rolls of camera film be developed and wrote personal notes to each of his brother. On the last one, he wrote on an envelope labeled Thoughts for the Day, in which he stored a collection of written admonitions. He added on the outside of the envelope, 8166, I never could quite make it. These thoughts are too much for me. At 5.45 a.m. on August 1st, Whitman phoned his wife's supervisor to explain that she had fallen ill, and that's why she didn't arrive to work that day. Uh, He also called his mom's wife, uh, mom's workplace, to say that she wouldn't be arriving to work that day because she was ill as well. His final journal entries were written in the past tense, so it was like, it suggested that he had already killed them. Like all of those things that he wrote, the suicide note, he acted like he had killed them even though it hadn't happened yet. Right. Like he just wrote it in past tense. After doing all the phone calls and the murders, et cetera, he rented a hand truck and cashed $250 in, in bad checks at a bank. He went to a hardware store. He purchased uh, tons of ammunition. Um, he told the cashier he was planning on hunting wild hogs. He purchased carbine magazines, six additional boxes of ammunition and gun cleaning solvent at another store. Then he went to Sears and bought a 12 gauge semi-automatic shotgun where he returned, he returned home with that and sawed off the barrel and buttstock of the shotgun. And then he packed a footlocker with all of the ammunition, the gun, a 35 caliber pump rifle. I mean, all of these guns, I could list them, but I don't fucking know the difference, but it was a lot of guns uh, and more than 700 rounds of ammunition. He also packed food, coffee, vitamins, dexedrine, excedrin, earplugs, jugs of water, matches, lighter fluid, rope, binoculars, a machete, three knives, a transistor radio, toilet paper, a razor, and deodorant. I mean, that's... He's packing for a trip. He's planning on... He's settling in and doing some killing. He's setting up shop. Yeah. He put khaki overalls on over a shirt and jeans, and then he went to the University of Texas at Austin. Around 11.25 a.m., he arrived. He showed, like, a false permit parking. Did you just take a, all this, like, in a duffel bag or no, something? No, it was in a footlocker, which I think is, like, a portable. Oh, right, right, right. I don't know exactly, but, okay. yeah, it's, like, a, whatever, a toolbox or something bigger, obviously. Did people ask what he was? Uh, nope. He wheeled into it, into the main building of the university with all of this equipment, uh, he entered the main building. He found an elevator, but it didn't work. An employee named Vera Palmer, Palmer activated it for him. He thanked Palmer and said, thank you, ma'am, before repeatedly saying, you don't know how happy that makes me. So basically, she put him in an elevator to go up there. I mean, obviously, it's not her fault. Right. She doesn't know. But uh, when he exited the elevator on the 27th floor, he hauled all of his equipment and the dolly up a flight of stairs to a hallway and it was sort of in that hallway, there was like a flight that led to a room that was sort of surrounded by an observation deck. Uh, it was there that he encountered receptionist Ed, Edna uh, Townsley, who would be his first victim. Whitman knocked her to the floor and split the back of her skull open with his rifle butt, and then he struck her above the left eye before dragging her behind a couch. Cheryl Botts and Don Walden entered the reception area from the observation deck 
and they noticed Whitman's gun and assumed he was going to the observation deck to shoot pigeons. Oh, that's that's better. That's okay. Yeah. Like, right. I, I don't know if that's a common Texas thing. Don't at me. Uh, <laughs> Whitman smiled and said, hi, how are you? As they went down the elevator and then he pushed the desk across the entrance to the stairway. So they basically lucked out. Yeah. With, uh, I guess they didn't see more. MJ Gabor, his wife, Mary Francis, and their son, Mike and Mark, were in Austin visiting a relative uh, around 11.45 a.m. They were climbing the stairs from the 27th floor, and they also encountered the desk that Whitman had placed at the entrance to the reception area. As the, the two boys tried to squeeze past it, Whitman came forward and fired his shotgun, hitting Mike in the shoulder and Mark in the head, then fired down the stairs, striking, striking Marguerite and Mary Francis. MJ and William, two of the other relatives, further down the stairs were hit and went for help at Mike's urging, so some of them escaped. Whitman then shot Townsley, that's the woman who let him in, in the head before exiting to the observation deck. So I don't think she was completely dead, and he just basically uh, killed her, for sure, <laughs> at that point. The one who he cracked her head open? He cracked her head open, so he then, at that point, shot her in the head to make before sure. going on to the observation deck. Right. I mean, at this point, it's about 11.48 a.m., and he's began shooting from the observation deck, uh, which is about 231 feet above the ground, and is just targeting people on the campus in a section that's called Guadalupe, Guadalupe Street, and that was called the drag because it was home to where all of the coffee shops and bookstores and student hangouts were. So it was, so a it was like crowd. a very popular area. One of the first people to get uh, shot is a woman named Claire Wilson. I'm going to talk about this movie a little bit at the end. There was a movie called Tower that came out like last year or maybe the year before, and it's like a animated um, movie based on this story. It's and animated. They, yes. It's like a combination, and it's like that style of animation that's kind of realistic. It has a name, but I can't remember what it's called. It's really good. It was on Netflix, too. They focus a lot on the story of Claire Wilson, who was pregnant at the time of the shooting. She's the first person that he actually shoots from the tower. Up until that point, the victims have all been people he encountered in the staircase or by the observation deck. She and her boyfriend at the time, a man named Thomas Ekman, uh, were leaving the student union when a shot rang out and hit her in the abdomen. She was eight months pregnant at the time. Oh, my God. Her baby was killed instantly. As her boyfriend went to her aid... He was shot in the chest and also died instantly. So this pregnant woman is lying there with her dead boyfriend by her side and bleeding, and her baby likely dead. I mean, she probably knew at that point. Uh, a passerby came over to her and lied next to her for over an hour, comforting her and keeping her conscious, and she did not get shot. But that's that's uh, in the movie just like a very dramatic thing to watch as this yeah. woman is like, don't. Like keep your eyes open, like stay awake. Like, right. And I think it might even be like saying things like the baby's fine, like your baby. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like convincing yeah. her that there was something to keep living for. Right. Basically what happens is a lot of people end up getting shot trying to help other people who have been shot. Yeah. I mean, it's just like a horrible scene. And, a, and, and, and people didn't really know what was happening. Like no one really knew <laughs> if it was something that was going to continue, because it just had never happened before. And Do you know they, what I mean? Did like, they even know where the shots were coming from at this point? I don't point? think initially anyone knew where they were coming from. Right. Um, I can't imagine being 
in that situation, obviously we're from America. We've, we have mass shootings all the time. And I can't imagine being in that situation where you're in the middle of a mass shooting, where you even have your wits about you to comprehend where it just must, it's, it's chaos clearly. Right. Right. So, I mean, a lot of it is like, if you're reading the list of the kills, it's like someone leaves the building, they're shot, they fall to the ground. Another person comes out to help the person who has fallen and then they get shot at. So a lot of people end up taking refuge behind these concrete flagpoles and walls and they're stuck there for the whole shoot, like the whole period this guy is shooting. They can't leave their protected cover. So they're just kind of watching people get shot and not knowing if they can, like there is some instances where people do risk their lives to drag someone to safety. Um, I mean, there's just more examples, people leaving lunch. I mean, this went on for over an hour. So people would go back inside and a guard would say, oh, it's safe. Like, I mean, it's just like all of these things. No one knew what the fuck was going on. The guy Gunby, who I mentioned earlier, who died in 2001, he's returning from a library with a forgotten book and he's shot in the upper arm and the abdomen, abdomen, which severed his small intestine. There's people there, another couple who were only married nine days, leaving the, the building that the tower was in and getting shot as they left. It's just like this nonstop chaos that it's happening. And there, at this point, there's no police arriving on the scene yet because it's just like, you know, it's just like a different point in time. So initially, some people mistook the sound of the shots for noise from a, a nearby construction site. Other people thought that the people falling to the ground were part of a theater troupe or a war protest. Like people just initially didn't know what was happening, which sounds crazy. But then if you're thinking about it, it's like the last thing on your mind back then was that someone's being shot. People are, someone's shooting people from a tower. Like, or that there's a school shooting. I mean, nowadays I feel like our first instinct would probably be that. I mean, that's just how different it is. One victim recalled that as she lay bleeding, a passerby a passerby reprimanded her and told her to get up. Like, so that's like, I think it's also, you know, this period with like Vietnam War protest. So there's also that element maybe. Like, like he thought that she was protesting? Like a sit-in or a, I have no idea. I mean, that's insane to well, me. I'd like to have a few words with yeah. that guy. <laughs> but as I said, many people did grasp what was happening and, and got wounded trying to drag people to safety. Yeah. An armored car, an ambulance finally started coming to help with the wounded. Four minutes after the shooting, a history professor was actually the first to telephone the Austin police. Um, and at 11.52 a.m., a patrolman finally arrived, and he was one of the first officers to arrive on the scene. He actually took refuge behind one of those stonewall columns, and Whitman shot was able to shoot through a six-inch space between the columns and killed the, off, the first officer who arrived on the scene. Officer Houston McCoy, who was 26 at the time, heard the shooting on his radio, and he arrived on campus. And as he was looking for a way into a tower, a student offered to help him saying he had a rifle at home. They went back to the student's house to get the rifle. I mean, this is how unprepared like police were at that time for any situation like this, that you're bringing a student, like you got a gun, let's go get it and come back. Like that's insane to me. There was also a man named Alan Crum, who was a 40 year old retired Air Force tail gunner. And he was a manager at the university bookstore co-op. He at some point saw a 17-year-old newspaper newspaper boy being dragged to safety, and he went to break up what he thought was a fight. So that's how he kind of came into it. He thought these two people were having a drag, drop, you know, knockout, knockout, drag down fight. Right. 
And then he quickly ran back to the tower and also offered to help the police. So another sort of like whatever non-policeman helping out in this situation. Uh, finally, another police officer named Jerry Day arrived. So they all went into the um, tower, like the, the, the bottom level of where the tower was. Another officer finally arrives around noon, and his name is Ray Martinez. He was off duty at the time and at home when he heard about the attack on the news, and he just showed up to help too. So he kind of initially, when he got there, started directing traffic so he could get people out of, like, no, he didn't want more people coming into the area. So that kind of helped save some lives. So he set up some traffic blocks to keep people from entering anymore. Officers were trying to reach the tower, but they were forced to move really slowly because they were being shot at the whole time. They were trying, more officers were trying to get to that bottom level of the tower. I mean, he, he really had planned a perfect crime. Right. But finally, a small group of the officers, including the people I've mentioned before and led by Houston McCoy, made their way into the tower via an underground maintenance tunnel. Once they kind of got into the the bottom of the tower, a police sharpshooter and a small plane kind of came back, but they started having fire back and forth between Whitman and the police helicopter. So it just kept circling at at a distance to try to distract Whitman while the other guys tried to move up. Yeah. The stairs of the tower. Um, They finally got to the 27th floor where they found those people who had been shot. One of them was still alive and he was, you know, someone moved him to safety. Uh, Martinez started up the stairs to the observation deck and Crum covered him as he walked up asking Martinez to deputize him first. I have no idea. That seems like such a white male thing to do. (laughs) Like, I need you to officially say it's okay for me to cover you. Like, what? I don't know. I like in that thought, like in that stressful situation, you're like, well, can you for- informally deputize me so it's legal for me to cover you? I have no idea what that means. I'm just assuming it's irritating. <laughs> As they continued going through, they found more of the bodies of the vic- the first victims. At some point... There was another person who was shot who was still barely alive, and he gestured to the observation deck. His name was Mike Gabor. He was part of that family group. And he said, he's out there, like he pointed to where Charles was. Um, Martinez reached the observation deck first. He told Crom to remain at the door. McCoy and Day reached the observation deck a few minutes later. At some point, Crum accidentally fires his rifle, and that created like a little chaos. They had to like back off around 124. While Whitman was looking south for the source of the rifle shot that accidentally went off, Martinez and McCoy rounded the northeast corner of the observation deck. Martinez fired on Whitman with his revolver and missed, uh, and McCoy then hit Whitman twice with his shotgun. Martinez then took McCoy's shotgun from him after he had emptied his own weapon and fired a final shot into Whitman at point-blank range. In the immediate aftermath, Martinez was actually shot by those on the ground who didn't realize that Whitman was dead and that the shots were happening were killing Whitman. So people, so people were still firing up into the tower and accidentally shot one of the cops who had just taken down Whitman, basically. Right. So obviously the shooting ends at that point because Whitman is dead. Uh, Martinez and McCoy were both awarded Medals of Valor by the city of Austin. And obviously following the shootings, the tower observation deck was closed I mean, there was a ton of bullet holes in the tower and they were repaired and the tower observation deck was reopened in 1968. It was closed again in 1975 following four suicides. 
Uh, they then built like a stainless steel lattice and other security features on the observation deck, and it reopened again in 1999. And, it, and it's only by by appointment guided tours, um, and all visitors are screened with metal detectors. Is it that great of a tower and needs to still be up? It's a pretty big tower attached to a building. Like, it's a huge building that has yeah. this clock tower, basically. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. I guess. How's the view? <laughs> no idea i mean it's texas it's not like we're on the ocean or something don't add us <laughs> um so as he requested in his suicide note he was autopsied and that was approved by his father uh the autopsy was conducted by a neuropathologist at austin state hospital and during the autopsy the guy his name was chainar discovered a pecan-sized brain tumor which he labeled an astrocytoma and which exhibited a small amount of necrosis, his conclusion was that the tumor had no effect on Whitman's actions. However, Texas governor at the time named John Connolly, who was, by the way, the man shot with JFK in the car, uh, he put together a commission of pathologists, neurosurgeons, psychologists, psychiatrists, the whole work to go over this autopsy more thoroughly. Uh, Because they really wanted to see if this brain tumor had any um, cause uh, on his action or was the cause of his actions. Uh, The commission could not say for certain that the brain tumor contributed to Whitman's action because the science at the time was just not what we have now. But they concluded that the tumor did contribute to his inability to control his impulses and behavior. Well, that's... Yeah. Following a three-hour hearing, the commission concluded that the original report, the autopsy report, was uh, an error. And they found that features of a globostoma multiform with widespread areas of necrosis, palisading of cells, and a remarkable vascular component described as having the nature of a small congenital vascular malformation uh, actually was a psychiatric contributor, contributor to his behavior. The report concluded that the relationship between the brain tumor and his actions cannot be established with clarity, However, the tumor conceivably could have contributed to his inability to control his emotions and actions and the application of existing knowledge of organic brain function, blah, 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 whatever. I have no uh, idea what you just said. Yeah, I don't either. The tumor was pressed against something called the, um, a part of the brain called the amyg- amygdala, and that's the part of the brain that's related to anxiety and fight or flight response. So I do feel like he was something was happening to him that was yeah. beyond just as this is not, I don't think this was just as, I mean, I feel like it's a combination of someone who yeah. was troubled and under a lot of stress, but I can see, I feel like it did have something to do because right. there was nothing in his life that indicated this level of violence. Also, I do think it's a pretty strange coincidence that there just happened to be a brain tumor also. Right. And he was saying it in his suicide note to me is fascinating. Right. He's like, something's wrong with me. Right. I'm going to psychiatrist, which is probably pretty uncommon for men during that period of time. Yeah. To say like, I'm having some problems that I, like, I feel like. I feel like the fact that he was saying it before we knew, right? It means something was going on with him that he could tell. Do you know what I mean? Like it is, a, it is very unusual because that's one of the heartbreaking things about if you've ever been close to someone who suffers from mental illness is oftentimes, I mean, short of fifty one fifteen, someone 
if they threaten violence or threaten to take their own life, there's really not a lot you can do. The person who is afflicted with the illness has to be willing themselves right. to get the help. So it is unusual that this is a person who was like, what something's wrong with right. me. He said, something's wrong with me. Give me an autopsy. And then he did have a tumor. <laughs> like that's right. just not something you can make up for an excuse. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, cause yeah. it's very, it's very likely nothing was there. Like the fact that he did have a tumor and I feel like the flight or flight, you can see this maybe panic or something. He was not reacting normally to stress situations. This whole right? situation, this whole incident is just like, it's so tragic on so many it, different levels. It really is. Um, I just wanted to clarify the guy who I said died in 2001, Gunby, he, um, I mentioned that he had been struck in the abdomen. What had happened was um, when he was in surgery after being shot, they discovered that he only had one functioning kidney to begin with, that he, he was unaware that he only had one functioning kidney to begin with. And now that kidney, he was shot in his one functioning kidney. Stop it. Yeah. Uh, so obviously was severely damaged. So he was in great pain for the rest of his life, his whole life. He was in severe pain and he actually died, uh, one week after discontinuing dialysis. Um, and that's why his death was ruled a homicide because it was actually caused by an injury. Like you only need one kidney to live. So this, this basically, it was like a slow homicide, right? Which I thought was like really interesting. Yeah. Cause I was like, wait, how does that happen? (laughs) You can just die after one day of being shot. But it was like, no, the injury actually happened. Whenever someone is discovered to have like a serious health problem, whether it's a brain tumor or like only one functioning kidney sort of by accident as a result of like some other reason that they're in the hospital, it always makes me super upset that I don't have health insurance because like I have this like deep paranoia that one day I'm going to get health insurance and then go to the doctor and they're going to be like, well, we could have caught the cancer. (laughs) Yeah. Ten, 10 years ago, but you just came here and now you've stage right. four. And then the longer you don't go, the scarier it gets. We're just like unintentionally talking about all of these sicknesses within our country during yeah. this whole episode. It really hits on a lot of things that are kind of <laughs> happening. It's scary. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so I'm going to go into just briefly like some of the movies that are based on this or inspired by this incident. The first one is the Bogdanovich movie. And that was like an insane movie. I quite, I don't quite know if I recommend it or not. I mean, it was fine. It's not like a great movie. What's it called again? Tower? It's called Target. Oh, Target. Uh-huh. So basically the movie, and it's going to sound extra hokey because the description is just stupid. When did it come out? Uh, I think it was 1969. Yeah. Or 68. Maybe No, 69. Yeah. Okay. It was written in like, or it was filmed and stuff like shortly after. So the movie stars Boris Karloff, who plays an aging horror movie actor, which is basically what he was. Uh, He decides he's going to leave the business and return to England um, because he feels like people are no longer uh, scared of horror movies anymore. Like the old fashioned horror movies have lost their uh, excitement because people are too too scared by real life things. Um, They don't care about the universal monsters anymore. Yes, exactly. Those are just outdated hokey, whatever. But uh, a film director in the movie who's actually played by Bogdanovich convinces him to make one final in-person promotional appearance at a Reseda drive-in before he leaves Hollywood for good. 
Uh, there's a dual storyline happening at the same time, and this one involves the character that's based on Charles Whitman. In this film, he's called Bobby Thompson. He's, you know, the clean-cut insurance agent, Vietnam War vet who lives in the suburban San Fernando Valley with his wife and parents. He is a gun collector and, and deeply disturbed. Uh, but his family doesn't really ever see that about him. So Thompson, like Charles Whitman, murders his wife and mother. And in the movie, a delivery boy happens to be at the home, <laughs> unluckily, and he also get, gets murdered. Uh, after he does that, he goes to like an area by an oil storage tank and, and sort of starts shooting at people in traffic on a local Los Angeles freeway. At some point, the police start responding to the shooting, and that's where he flees and takes refuge at the same drive-in where Orlock, played by Boris Karloff, is making his appearance that evening. So the two storylines merge at this drive-in theater. When the movie starts, Thompson is in the projectionist room where he's already uh, killed the projectionist, and they're watching uh, this Orlock film, and he begins shooting patrons in the drive-in. Like, they're sitting in their cars with, like, it actually made me want to go to a drive-in, not like to get shot, but it was just like seeing the speakers on the window yeah. and like, I don't know. It was just like, oh, I, I really want to go to a drive-in movie. Like, this is like, so like, I'm sorry, but this is, it's such a hokey premise how they just come together. It's a hokey premise because this is like literally like two different movies. They just smashed into one. Right. Cause they're trying to make some grand social statement, Rachel. <laughs> But it, they don't need the Boris Karloff no. storyline. It has nothing to do. No. They don't need that. Well, you're going to see. <laughs> you're going to see why we need that okay, element. Why? Does he, uh, does he turn into Frankenstein? No. <laughs> um, so, as I said, he's there also with his secretary, whose name is Jenny. Uh, and they're sitting in their car watching the movie, and she gets shot. Uh, it's at that point that he leaves the car and goes to the projection room, Boris Karloff's character, and he disarms uh, the shooter with his cane. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's why we need him? Yes. Couldn't have just got another old dude to disarm him with his cane? It had to be but, Boris Karlov? No, I will tell you. Rachel, I did not finish. <laughs> he is easily disarmed because he's very shocked seeing the screen. <laughs> seeing the actor in person and on the screen at the same time. There's like a moment where he's like, Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> okay, I love this movie now. I, I, okay, I'm starting to think, like, it is worth a watch because it's, like, an hour and a half. It's, like, one of those movies that's really short. Like, you know what I mean? Like, those old movies are, like, an hour and a half. Right. It's actually a Roger Corman produced it or something. So it has that element to it. And then, of course, he, you know, the shooter is cowering, defeated in a corner, and Orlock says, is that what I was afraid of? Meaning, like, this is just a cowering young boy. <laughs> But I was like, well, when, it, when he has a gun, it's a little more scary. And Thompson is arrested, and as he walks away, he turns uh, to the cop or whoever and says that he hardly ever missed. So he's just bragging about his marksmanship. That was Karloff's last appearance in a major American film. And it was pretty funny. Roger Ebert actually gave the film 2.5 stars out of four, which is not horrible. How many thumbs uh, is that? <laughs> it's like... One and a pinky? I have no idea. Uh, he said it isn't a very good film, but it's an interesting one, which I feel like is true. And he called Carlos' performance fascinating, but kind of out of place. It is It is really... I, I, I mean, Ebert actually agreed with you, saying it probably would have been a more effects, effective film without the whole aging Hollywood actor aspect to it. Like, if you had just focused on this guy's life, it would have been a better movie. Yeah. 
But it does make it kind of more campy, I think, to have the stupid horror, like old school horror element to it. Like speaking of two movies that are crammed into one, I've been on, I've been like rewatching all the Friday the 13th movies. And obviously I know that's not like high cinema, like as they Uh get later and later. (laughs) But I'm just saying like, obviously there's There's no pedigree. Well, I mean, like obviously they're going to be fucking shitty and that's why I love them. But I was watching, what did I watch yesterday? Was it seven? I think it's seven where the girl, it's like this story, like the storyline is basically like this girl has fucking telekinesis, which has nothing to fucking do with Jason or the fact that this is supposed to be a slasher franchise. And it's like two different movies in one. It's like, well, is it about this girl with telekinesis or is it about Jason? And then Carrie or, (laughs) and then she ends up defeating him with her telekinesis. And it's the most absurd fucking thing ever. The problem is once you get to seven, I think people think, well, I can't just do another straight up slasher movie. Yeah, like they have to add a new element. Yeah, because then he went one. to New York after that. Jason took Manhattan after that. <laughs> I just that. picture him with his little suitcase on a bus. <laughs> I'm gonna make it big. If no. I can make it there, I can make it anywhere. Desi, the whole movie, an hour, the first hour of the movie takes place on a boat going to New York. A boat? Yes, it's like what a is cruise. he an immigrant? He, no, <laughs> no, it's a cruise ship. It's like the graduating class oh. of Camp Crystal Lake. Oh god, going- I love how they keep the Crystal Lake element going. Like. What I love is how no one shut that place down, even though it's a total fucking dump. Right. I mean, there was nothing really to save there. I should rewatch those movies. I have not seen them in so long. They're and so I honestly good. don't even know. I maybe have seen th- the first three. Like, I, I, I feel like I did see New York, though. <laughs> that sounds vaguely familiar. There's this great moment when he finally does get to Manhattan when there's only like 20 minutes left of the film to go. And the Muppets show up. Well... <laughs> No, the Muppets do not show up, but he does walk past this, like, group of, like, hoodlums, and he just kicks their boombox. Oh, God. See, I love love horror movies where they take on a new theme. Like, I always have loved um, Leprechaun in the Hood. (laughs) Right. Like, it's so... I love it, Ice-T in that movie. Yeah. So I'm like... I mean, it's like... Like, you know how all the horror movies have to have, like, puns when they kill or something? Or, like, with the Leprechaun movies, maybe right. not Jason. With the super... Can- well, Jason doesn't talk. Jason doesn't talk. But, like, a lot of them will have those, like, puns when they're about to kill you. <laughs> yeah. I um, I love it. Yeah, me too. I should watch the Friday the 13th. There was another uh, television movie called The Deadly Tower that was based on the incident, and that starred Kurt Russell as Whitman. I feel like I might have seen that movie, but I'm just not sure. I mean, not when it came out, obviously, but at some point on, like, right. a rerun. Uh, McCoy actually filed a lawsuit against the movie saying that it portrayed him like a coward. (laughs) That lawsuit was thrown out of court and he actually had to pay the fees of the opposing attorney. (laughs) Now I'm I'm like, now I really want to watch it and see what a coward ass. I think there was like a lot of controversy with the police action, like what they did right and wrong and stuff like that. By the way, I didn't, I couldn't find that much information on this, but there was like a few Reddit threads saying that Charles Whitman was an MK ultra Gone, oh, gone bad, of yeah. course. Like, there's always some MK Ultra connection. Always. There was uh, some songs based on the incident. There was one by Harry Chapin called The Sniper, one by Kinky Friedman called The Ballad of Charles Whitman, and one by the insane clown posse called The Tower. <laughs> That's the only one of those I will check out. <laughs> Whitman, the story of Whitman also was in, um, was told in Full Metal Jacket, one of the, um, Marines and that told about uh, that were talked about admiring his marksmanship skills. Um, I mentioned the uh, movie The Tower. 
Um, also in full, um, Natural Born Killers, Tom Sizemore's character talks about Whitman saying that he was an influence on him and his own depravity. Uh, and he also claims that Whitman had killed his mother in the shooting. There was also an episode of The Simpsons that had it, had a reference to this shooting. Which one? In it, uh, Ned Flanders has a dream which involves him shooting people out inside the university clock tower uh, that's based on the film, The Deadly Tower. Uh, so it's like a reference to the movie that was based on right. Charles Whitman. So it's like, I don't remember. What season was that? That is. If it was after nine, I don't remember. I don't know if it, what season it was. It's from an episode called Homer Loves Flanders. Uh, I thought you might know it because you love I'm the sure, Simpsons. I'm sure I do. It sounds if I, vaguely familiar if to I me. If I saw it, I'd be like, oh yeah, duh, yeah. of course. Uh, so, and just... One more recent connection that I'm just going to talk about a little bit. Uh, FBI profiler named Mary Ellen Toole recently talked about the similarities between the Las Vegas shooting and the Whitman shooting. Because he was uh, up high uh, in yes. that shooting. And she she believes that he actually researched the Texas shooting before he did oh his own God. shooting in Las Vegas. He was about 13 when it happened. And it just like has a lot of similarities. They both carried tons of weapons up to a high per- perch and positioned them to achieve like maximum carnage. Right. She said, "Frankly, I'm surprised it took this long to have one so similar because it is sort of a, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. Like right. I mean, it's literally the definition of that, that like cliche." Um, and she said she thinks that people don't think about it because that attack has been so forgotten because mass shootings are just so common now. I didn't know about it. That, I I mean, I remember it as a child, that shooting, I mean, obviously I don't remember it as I wasn't born yet, but like, I remember hearing about that shooting as like a huge mass murder and just being like horrified by the idea of it. And there was another shooting I remember being horrified by that happened in San, oh God, maybe San Diego at a McDonald's and like... 18 people were shot inside of a McDonald's down by the border somewhere. Um, So, but they're so common. Now, this shooting also did implement a lot of changes in how they were handled. Because you can see it, it seemed like the cops were like, wait, what? SWAT teams were created after the attack to kind of deal with a mass shooting situation. Uh, The discussion about the role of mental illness and mass killers sort of started at that point. Um, so that's like a good thing. One of the people who wrote about this, and a guy named Grant Dewey, who's a criminologist, and he wrote about mass murder. He said in the 50 years before Whitman's attack, there were 25 mass public shootings, which is defined as killing four or more people in a public place that's not connected to drug violence yeah. uh, or gangs. And after the shooting, more than 150 and counting have happened. So it was really like a bellwether that was sort of the start of this unprecedented rise in mass public shootings yeah. uh, in America. The tally for the Las Vegas shooting, by the way, was 58 people killed and more than 500 injured. And that it's now the deadliest mass shooting in modern history. Right. Uh, I was just, I was reading a lot about these and I thought like, it is fucking insane to me that that happened less than a year ago. And we hardly think no. about it anymore. No, we and don't. things have, I mean, obviously this one is still like number seven or number eight on the list of mass uh, shootings. Um, so that is the story of the Texas tower shooting. <laughs> wow. You know, that it's the same anniversary, that the same anniversary of my sobriety date. <laughs> August 1st. Yes. Wow. That's crazy. 40 years after I got sober. 
See, I mean, that date isn't all bad. <laughs> it's not all bad. It was, so yeah. you didn't know about that story? No. Or? Oh, okay. I did. I mean, you, it's one of those things I'm sure I heard about. I just right. don't, I never. Because it's in popular culture so much. It's definitely one of those things where you probably don't even know it's based on something real. Right. And you do, you should really, I I, mean, I don't know what, how I feel about recommending Targets. It is campy and it's from the late 60s and it has a lot of elements I like, even though those movies are not great. Yeah. The decor is cool and it just has elements that are cool to look at. And right. it's like, whatever, it's an hour and a half, whatever. It's not the worst thing I've ever seen and it has definitely cool things in it. But the movie Tower, the animated sort of semi-documentary is really, 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 really good. Yeah. And I would definitely... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've had a really stressful year with work and family stuff, and I know I'm not alone when I say I tend to push that stress down in order to get what I need done, done, and that only makes things worse. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. In the past, therapy has helped me navigate many situations from helping me to set boundaries to just becoming the best version of myself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I love that it's entirely online, so it's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash HCS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash HCS. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. I highly recommend you watch that one. Okay. 